Hello and welcome to Creative Lives. This is the podcast brought to you by Lecture in Progress, where we get to know inspiring creatives, how they got to where they are today, and their wisdom for those just starting out. In this episode, we're speaking to Wilfred Wood. My name is Wilfred Wood and I'm an artist and I do portraits. An artist and sculptor best known for transforming celebs and politicians into exaggerated and not always the most flattering versions of themselves. Cutting his teeth making eyeball mechanisms for satirical TV show Spitting Image in the mid-90s, Wilfred meandered his way through a number of jobs in his 20s before finding a medium that really suited his style, and that came in the form of plasticine. His current focus sees him working on a combination of personal commissions in both sculpture and drawing, as well as giving talks and running workshops. Through our conversation, Wilfred shared advice on nailing public speaking, the importance of diversifying your creative work, and how it can be just fine not to have a clear sense of direction or exact career plan in your 20s. But first, we found out what Wilfred's working day looks like. Quite often what I do at kind of 10 o'clock in the morning, someone turns up and I draw them at home, and that takes a couple of hours. And then I'll sort of make up a day, shall I? So it's kind of like in the afternoon, I might go to my studio and then do some sculpting, usually in plasticine. That's what I'm doing at the moment, but various materials. At the moment, I do more drawing than sculpting. But if you looked at a sort of few years and got an average, I'd probably be half drawing, half sculpting. How I choose people is very much a felt thing rather than an intellectual thing. It's nothing that I work out. It's really a combination of unknown people that are friends or or photos of people that I see on Instagram or something like that who look great or interesting or weird. I I love doing that, but also there's a constant stream of kind of celebrity politicians, those sorts of people who crop up and are either in the news or have particularly interesting faces and hopefully both. So that's a different sort of thing. And my attitude to that and the way I do it is quite different from how I draw a unknown person or not a famous person or a friend who comes and sits for me and I draw a portrait of them. So there's a, there's the kind of satirical side of what I do. Then there's, I hope, the very sort of direct and honest portraiture that I do. The, the thing that makes me want to do a portrait of someone is very... I can hardly identify it. There's obvious things like big noses and sticking out ears, which are great. Hopefully, as you're working on a portrait, it's getting better and better and better. And then it suddenly tips into you're fiddling with it and you're overworking it. And the, the trick is to pick that tipping point. But that just comes, it's another felt thing, and it just comes after having done loads of it. I often try and, when I'm doing workshops with people who have never done this sort of thing before, it can be a bit awkward because my workshops are usually about two hours and some people have obviously finished in about an hour or half an hour. But I have to say to them, look, it, I really think it's done. I love it. It's great. Just leave it like that and do another one. Don't keep fiddling with it because it, you'll just make it worse. So, you know, at a certain point, you have to be aware that's the time to stop. But it's a, it's a very 
important moment for any artist doing anything. What about making a film or doing music? I mean, imagine being in a music studio. It must be absolutely nuts. Got a, you know, multi-track recording studio. How do you ever know when to stop? I think that would be so difficult. My studio is in Hackney Wick. And, you know, there's endless things to say about Hackney Wick. Basically, I moved there sort of at least 10 years ago and it was nothing. It was no man's land. Nobody was interested in it. And I thought, where the hell am I? And then the Olympics came and then the hipsters came and then the coffee came and then the BMWs came. And now it's they're building like mad all over the place. And it's a kind of the hipsters practically have got forced out. So... Me and a few other people are in a couple of space studios that are left, but we've got a lease until 2025 and then probably will be chucked out. Anyway, I've got a very nice studio now. I mean, it's, beca it's become a sought-after sort of studio after me thinking nothing of it. And it's got loads of heads made of different materials all around the room. It's got piles of plasticine that I can just dive into whenever I feel like it. A big table that's high, so I stand at my table rather than sitting down because I get a bad back. A plans chest and usual, you know, uh, radio. Originally from Sussex, Wilfred first moved to London to study graphics at Central St. Martins. Not long after, he worked as a designer in publishing before moving on to work as an apprentice head builder with TV show Spitting Image. It was this more hands-on, craft-based work that set him on his current path, eventually leading to setting up as an independent artist. I grew up in the countryside in Sussex. When I grew up, I wanted to be Doctor Who. I think I grew up in a very arty family, so art was kind of always on the agenda. And really, it was like the opposite of quite a lot of stories you hear of artists almost fighting their parents to be allowed to become artists. With my background, it just seemed inevitable that I'd become an artist and I just fell into it in a sort of lazy way, really. Doing graphic design was a kind of nervousness on my part. When I left, I thought I'd have more likelihood of having a proper job. My granddad was a graphic designer, so it wasn't a foreign thing to me, but I slightly would have liked a bit more of the courage of my convictions to do fine art somewhere. But then I might have just been lost and I, I, my background was pretty traditional you know I've never really got conceptual art and I still don't really get it whereas with graphics I was a shit graphic designer at least I felt I vaguely knew the ropes I probably knew the ropes too much before I even started and that sort of hindered me and made me think I knew it all which was rubbish but yeah it's a, a complicated cocktail of things that go into making that decision and whether it was the right decision or not, blah, blah, blah. So after college, after St. Martin's doing graphics, I got a job in publishing. Basically, it was absolutely nine to five, couldn't be a more straight sort of job. And it was great for teaching me basically to get up in the morning, get paid, use computers, which were only at college then only beginning to come in in big, big time, really. Deal with people, all the working stuff but I just got totally bored so I I gave that up suddenly really I just suddenly suddenly thought I was making no impression on anyone I wasn't annoying amusing anyone in any way I might as well have stacked shelves there wasn't any odds 
So that happened. Then I got various freelance jobs, but then Spitting Image came along, which was a TV programme at the time. And that kind of gave me the idea that I could make things and have fun at work and get paid for it. So it opened a whole new horizon. And it was a total contrast from my plodding along dull publishing job. Spitting Image was just a very lucky chance. Obviously, I knew the TV programme. I didn't like madly love it or anything, but I knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who worked there. That was it. And they were looking for apprentices, so-called, which was basically young people going there, learning how to make eyeballs and blinks. So I was screwing in eyeballs onto little fragile little mechanisms that we made and making the blink mechanism for the heads. That's how I started out. And then I started making fish and dogs and wolves and things like that. But I wasn't ever like properly sculpting heads or anything like that because I hadn't done sculpture before, really. But it gradually got me into the, the feel of doing something completely different and something fun. But then I was only there for a couple of years because it folded in 1996. So just as I was getting going, it finished, which was, you know, at the time, not great. But then I started making things myself and showed a few people. And then one or two people, college people, things like that, asked me to do things like the first job I had making something was for the Face magazine. There was a lot of, of downtime panic and general angst in my 20s because I didn't know what I was doing. I I wrote stories, I illustrated stories, I did little bits of animation, bits of music, all sorts of things, you know, in in an attempt to find my medium. And it wasn't till I was about 30 that I actually began to settle down. So, I mean, I think uh, more sort of advice time, I think it's fine to meander all over the place in your 20s. Well, I mean, it turned out okay for me to do that. I think, but I still think for most people, it's okay to try lots of different things. I mean, at a certain time, you have to start focusing in a bit if you're going to get anywhere. But yeah, uh, I, I was all over the place. And when Spitting Image ended and my publisher, you know, I was, I was lost. I did a TEFL course, which is teaching English as a foreign language. And I, it was a two-week intensive course. And I always remember it cost £810, which practically killed me at the time. And I failed it. I failed. Nobody fails TEFL courses. I failed the TEFL course because I was such a useless teacher and I don't understand grammar. That, that was a disaster. So, uh, yeah, there, was, there were times of, of trouble and not knowing what, was, what I could possibly do. As someone with such a distinctive visual approach, we asked Wilfred his thoughts on how to land on a style that feels right for you, including how to build confidence with your voice, even in the face of rejection. What should happen is that you could just get little little drops of confidence and little little boosts. So there are all sorts of things. Like I remember I used to go around to a lot of shops um, trying to sell little heads that I'd made, including some monkey heads. And I went to, there was this this shop on Old Compton Street called American Retro. And I went in there and there was a woman there who was quite well known as the buyer for of sort of funny objects and things like that. Went in there and she took one look at my stuff and said, I think we've seen rather a lot of monkeys recently, don't you? 
and it was awful. Like that's the that's the ice cube down the back at the neck, and she was quite right. You know, I was just doing cliches, so that was awful. But then I went down uh, St Martin's Lane. There's that um, Philip Stark Hotel there, and they used to have a shop underneath it. I took my stuff in there, and as I was in there, this kind of posh guy with money came in and looked over my shoulder and immediately bought one of the things I was trying to get the shop to stock. So that was like, you know, these tiny little things that there's a, there's a, a knock you down and build you up. These are all just the little salt and pepper that's put the spice in the public's reception of what you're trying to do as an artist. There's a certain inevitability about what you do. I saw this interview with Philip Larkin, the other, the poet, the other day, and he was he was saying, people always ask me why I do such miserable poems. And my answer to them is that I live up here in Hull and I work in a library and I've got rather a dour outlook. What else can I do? We've all got our own influences and personalities and we can't just turn our hand to anything at any time. There's probably, you know, I'm very limited in what I can do. I do it to absolutely the best I can, but I can't just switch and do something completely different tomorrow. I'm reading this book by an American writer called Tobias Wolf. I watched an interview with him recently on YouTube and the, for all artists, but I think writers perhaps more than anyone, they, people always say, how did you find your voice? And he basically said, the best way to find your voice is to not think about trying to find your voice. It's terribly difficult if you consciously try and find your voice. I mean, really, you just have to go with your enthusiasms, what turns you on, really, whatever that is. You know, it may, you may think it's wrong or unfashionable or impolite or dull or whatever you think. You, what else option have you got? You have to go with the things that fire you up. Over time, Wilfred's found that the type of work he gets offered has shifted, which has also pushed him to diversify his practice to include running workshops and giving talks. This is something he's taken on quite naturally, with an often comic and entertaining approach to public speaking that makes him appear pretty comfortable talking to a crowd. Behind the scenes, however, nerves can still get the better of him, yet that doesn't deter him from saying yes to talks and encouraging other creatives to do the same. He tells us more about how these additional practices feed into his work. Two or three years ago, someone said, would I do a workshop? And I thought, "What about what? I've got no idea what to do. And they said, well, what about plasticine? So, it's you know, I've quite often found in life, it's other people giving you a nudge in a different direction that you couldn't be bothered with or couldn't, wouldn't have thought of that starts out a whole new path to go down. And it's lovely. And so workshops, it's really, really fun and that generally I find people are astonished by what they come out with. And other people think it's very, very funny. So it's, you know, it has, it has real great sparkling results for, for very little money, time, materials. It's not a fuss, you know, it's a couple of hours sitting down. And the, the real, my main sort of thing with workshops is that I, I don't really tell people what to do. I just say, get on with it. But I'm constantly available if anyone wants any help, if I can help in any way. But the great thing about not telling people what to do is that everyone has their own weird solutions to how you do noses, how big to make it, 
how do you do eyeballs, you know, all that sort of thing. So they, I get a lot, hopefully at the end of a workshop, there's a very wide variety of different approaches. Public speaking, I used to absolutely, utterly loathe it in every way. And I found it hideous and I'd be nervous for a week before public speaking of any sort. Basically, I've done so much of it that I've got a lot easier about it. If you're easier about it, it come, you know, that comes across and everyone's happy, really. But I'm still nervous about it. But I see it as part of the job. It's not like I do one thing and I can just sit in my studio and do it and everyone will be constantly badgering me with com- commissions. And I don't have to do any. I've got to get out there and be known and describe and explain what I do in certain ways that gets people on board. And then that, that just keeps the whole show, show on the road. But I'm doing a TEDx talk in Newcastle. And honestly, every morning I wake up for the last few days and it's just going to get worse. That's the first thing that crops into my head and I basically feel sick about it. But it's mad because I've done these things plenty of times and it's all my own work and it's all my own slides and I'm perfectly capable of standing up there and just talking about it. But it still sends a shiver of fear into my heart. I think it's just some people are more like that than others. But for me, it's probably some necessary sort of preparation and reaction to make sure that when it comes to it, I've got a lot of adrenaline pumping around my body, which I do think actually helps you to remember the name of the person that you've done the portrait of you or you're showing, and you kind of put on a good performance. I always remember this thing about John Lennon in The Beatles. He used to be sick before going on stage. Sick. And you'd never think it you think bloody hell you know of all the people a kind of mouthy slightly sort of aggressive type of guy you know be fine but no so I always remember that and I I I think very few people really enjoy public speaking you've just if anyone asks you this is advice if anyone asks you to do public speaking to do something in a school to do a workshop and it just unless it's ridiculous just say yes Because even if it's poorly paid, poorly attended, badly organised, whatever it is, it's experience and it will just give you that extra shift for the next one. The only way of getting better at public speaking is by doing public speaking. Making a living as an artist is, quite notoriously, not always the easiest of pursuits. Wilfred gave us an insight on how he's been able to make it work, as well as his advice for others when it comes to earning as an emerging creative. My attitude to money is basically I am naturally cautious and stingy. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm not impulsive, really, and I don't want loads of stuff. I do buy basically too much art, which, uh, you know, I really must keep a reins on. But I've always lived within my means. I'm just that sort of person. And I might say the reason for that is that I just don't want to worry about money. I want to worry about money as little as possible because it's really boring and gets everybody down. So in other words, don't spend it. So just earn what you can and try not to spend it. So you've got a good buffer. So you feel fairly secure. And if you feel fairly secure, you'll be able to be at your most creative. If you're angsting about the rent, it's very difficult to be properly creative. 
I don't have any problem with side jobs whatsoever. I mean, obviously, if they're five days a week side jobs, it's difficult. But when I was working at the publishers, I wrote stories, I I built things, I ended up writing a little book that I self-published and had it at the National Theatre in this big sort of artist books convention. I think it's, if you've got the urge, I mean, it all depends on your motivation. All of this depends. If you've got the urge, you will do it and it'll happen. Um, if you don't care about it enough, it won't. I mean, it's, it's, that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line of, of all of this. I've always had an absolute nagging little dogs at my heels feeling like time is short. I've got to get on. I've got to try and do some good work. You know, that's always been nagging at me. And I think that is what any artist needs. The Creative Lives podcast is brought to you by Lecture in Progress, a platform helping emerging talent grow fulfilling creative careers. I'm Indy Davis, and our guest this week was Wilfred Wood. Our editor is Ivor Manley, with production support from Laura Snowd. Lecture in Progress is made possible with the support of our brand partners. They include GF Smith, Google, Sky Creative Agency, Colophon Foundry, GifGaff, and the Paul Smith Foundation. Find out more at lectureinprogress.com. And we also love hearing from you, so please do get in touch or leave us a rating. We'll be taking a short break over the next couple of weeks, but we'll be back in the new year with more creative lives to share. Until then, have a great break.